Anyway, my name is Jane Biro, and I've been, uh, I was born and raised in a place called Matare in Nairobi, Kenya. Um, there's so much that happens in, in, in Africa and in Kenya to be specific. And usually when people uh, visit uh, Africa, of course they go and they see the, the beautiful part of uh, Kenya. They go to, the, the, to do safari. And honestly, Kenya is beautiful. There's a lot of uh, animals to see. There's a lot of nature and we have good people. And there's a way you can go to Nairobi and there's some parts of Nairobi that you can go to and you'd feel like there's no poverty here. Same thing as if you've been to South Africa, there's a, a part of South Africa where it's so wealthy that you actually feel like you're, you're, the, you're in the first world. But again, in such communities, usually there's, a, there's some people who are actually the majority who are usually very poor. And in my, in my case, I, I was born in a place called Matare, and it's one of the biggest slums that we have in the world. I think apart from the one in South Africa, which is uh, very, very huge, Ours is probably one of one of the biggest, and uh, it's just so so many slums brought together. Like, they don't, not really brought together, but so many slums in one place. And one of the hardest thing is that those communities where we were born is like when kids are born in that neighborhood, there is is nothing for them to live for. There's no hope. And one of the hardest thing is that uh, a kid is born. Uh, there's there's what the cycle of poverty. So you're born into poverty. Your your father and mother were poor, and they didn't go to school. And most likely, they they end up getting kids who are who are born in the same uh, in the same community. And so you find you are born in the same community. You don't go to school yourself, and so you don't even get a, a decent job. And you get children who get to the same cycle. And so the cycle goes on and on and on. And I remember one of my hardest thing was uh, to have something to eat. And I know some some people that might sound common, and for us having a meal was one of the biggest biggest need that we had. And uh, I remember we'd go out to play soccer, and uh, you know when kids go to play soccer, they are like hungry, they're tired, and they're always hoping to go home to find something to eat. One thing you have to realize is that when kids are born, they don't realize whether they are poor or not. Any child, even bo- kids that are born here in Canada, they don't even know whether they they don't even know what what is poverty. They don't even know the status of their family and all that. And so for us, born as little kids, we didn't even know that we were poor. And so we were born into these families, and we are hoping, hey, life is going to be... Every kid is like excited about every, every other day and stuff that they're going to get. But then for us, when we'd come home, uh, we used to live in a 10 by 10, a 10 by 10 space where it's not just... We actually used to call it self-confused. It's not self-contained. We used to call it self-confused because the same room is where you're sleeping. That's where your living room is. And so we can, you can be sleeping on one side. Actually, the whole house uh, becomes a bedroom at night because you just lay stuff on the ground and then you all sleep. And uh, of course, there's a small space where you're cooking your stuff. Then we actually used to make fun of it. We'd say, hey, when you're dreaming, you better be careful how you're dreaming because... If your dreaming is if your dream is so violent, you might find yourself in the kitchen, and it's one of those things that you know. Right now, we can joke and, and laugh about it, but by then they were not funny. And so I was born in this house where, where whenever I would come to the same room, um, you know, you walk into this room, even without somebody telling you that there's nothing to eat, you automatically know that those stuff that you come into the room, the room is already cold. 
So first of all, anything that was cooked in that house, you would know. Definitely, if there's something that was cooked. Because one thing about African food, we like spicy food. And we like food that is smelling really good. And so we walked into that house, or rather that room, and you know automatically there's nothing that is smelling in the air. And that is one indication that, hey, we didn't have food or we don't have food. The second indication was you walk into the same room and then the room is cold. If the room is cold because we don't have heat, we don't have any air condition and all that, so whenever we cooked in the house, the whole house would be warm. And you're stepping into that house, you'd automatically know, hey, there's something to eat or there's not, nothing to eat. And so, of course, when we were little, we didn't understand all those. And so we, you'd expect to walk into the room and then you have something to eat. And then my, my mom would look at us and say, we don't have anything to eat and we'd go to bed hungry. Now, that happened to my family. It happened to my neighbor's family. It happens to my community. Like, almost each and every family would have days they would go without something to eat. And that was the norm. If you have something to eat, you you eat and you're happy and you're excited. If you don't have anything to eat, as sad as it is, you just go to bed and that's it. And so realize when you went to bed hungry, of course you were sleeping. That means you woke up hungry. And that means there was nothing even when you wake up in the morning. And for adults, I know most of the parents who would sacrifice everything to make sure that their kids have something. But then those same kids would wake up and it start hitting them. You know what? We're actually poor. We actually can't afford. If they happen to walk somewhere, because of course most of us didn't have television. And if you happen to walk somewhere and you see a television and or you see a picture of some food, and I don't know what that it, I don't know what that does to you. But anytime you I see, I used to see a picture of that. You're like, man, how come these guys have this? How come? Especially to be honest with you, seeing stuff from the West. It's one of those things where don't blame Africans if they all want to come to the West. Because all that we used to see is like, man, these guys have it figured out. And so as little kids, you're growing up, you're thinking, how comes that my family cannot afford this? I'm talking so much about food because uh, I'm passionate about food. I, as you can see, I'm a big boy and I, I love to eat. And that was one of the things that really affected me so much and... Of course, there are other things like uh, shoes and uh, clothes and stuff that we sometimes take for granted. I remember we used to have one that we actually used to call Sunday Best. If, you, if you've heard that term, Sunday Best, to us was actually for real. When you say Sunday Best, to us it's like the best clothes that you have, you could only wear them when you're going to church. And if you happen to wear them on another day, you get a beating because your mom is going to be like, you're not going to get another one. And so sometimes we'd go without shoes because you're reserving this special one just to go to church with. And one of the other things that happened is that when the kids were born in the same community, there was always an expectation. And the expectation was nothing fancy. It was like, oh, this guy, is a, you, you just got a baby boy, that boy is going to be a thief. Like that's what they all expected. Oh, you give birth to a girl, she's going to be a prostitute. That's definitely what was expected. And so when all the kids that were born, there's nothing that was expected that was going to be positive. They actually used to say that nothing good can come out of Mathare. Remember just like they said about Jesus. And literally nothing. And it's because we were like in our own world. You're in your own world where you think nobody cares. Nobody cares for us. And so we are on our own. And so anytime suggestions would come, hey, you can be a doctor or something. People would be like, really? 
we can't have that talk now because we didn't have any role models growing up. And so the kids would always look up to the people who are stealing. Like as a boy, I used to see some guys who would go out and steal and come home with a lot of money. And to me, I'm like, probably that's what I should do. And that was the life that we were exposed to. And I remember my mom, uh, she didn't want us to, to be thieves. Because everybody was expecting us to be thieves. She wanted us to have a decent life. And so what she would do to try and get some money was to sell something in Kenya we call Changa. It's more like liquor. It's more like moonshine, uh, if you guys are familiar with moonshine. And so she was selling that. It's it's one of those, they make they make it with some chemicals. And the idea is to make it as strong as you can so that when people come to drink, they don't, because people that you're selling to, they, they don't have a lot of money. And so they, they want to drink the smallest with the less money and then they want to get the effect of it. And so they try and make it as strong as possible. And so that's what my mom was selling. And at some point, she even started selling drugs. And it's, if you hear such, uh, my mom selling drugs and all that, even even me saying it, it sounds weird. Like, how how, how did the, my mom even do that? And if somebody hearing that, they can say, man, what's up with, with his mom? But if you're a parent, you understand. You have kids, these kids have to eat. If you don't do anything, they don't have anything to eat. And so those are parents who are desperate and they'll do anything to make sure that their kids have something. And that's what my mom was doing. She was just trying to make sure we have something. But again, it's not the right thing. And if it's not the right thing, it cannot be successful. And so it didn't go well for the most part. And I remember at some point we had a father who was a, supposed to be a stepdad who was a cop, undercover cop. But he had issues of drinking, so he was an alcoholic. So when he came over, we were like, oh, at least we have some some guy who can provide for us. And my mom was a little bit relieved that, hey, maybe this guy can take off some some of these uh, baggages from from us and she can he can be providing for us. But this guy was an alcoholic, and what happens is that one day he went to the village and he was drinking. He took his gun, he had a gun, he shot somebody, and he killed somebody when he was drunk. So he had to be taken away from that from that community. And since he was not my real dad, so we couldn't move with him. So here's my mom who is left with kids. Um, the job that she was doing wasn't working. The guy that we thought he was going to be the provider, he had to move away. And she doesn't have anything else to do. My mom is one of those uh, women who always think so hard. Like they, they're, like they take everything so hard and that was really so hard for her to take like she cannot provide for us and we are growing up just like uh, any other kid and she felt like she was a failure and i'm gonna tell you most of the families that you see uh, their parents have the biggest burden because they are looking at these children they know these children are helpless they can't do anything and most of those parents would 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 feel so bad and for my mom she actually attempted suicide she thought this life is not making sense to me I cannot live to see my kids going through this. And it's, it was not un until later on I was told about this, that at some point in life she had attempted to take her life away. And it's because she was thinking, I can't take care of my kids and I can't see them going through this. But she did not die. But actually we later on got uh, two, uh, two brothers, they were twins. And life even became harder. Like we were poor and we were getting more kids. And we were like... How are they even going to survive? And I remember when she attempted that and 
we started living with my grandma when she attempted suicide and she was not stable. We started living with my grandma because uh, my mom could not provide for us. But so what happens is that my grandma had like nine kids. Among them, there were, of course, uh, ladies and uh, some of them were men. Most of them, they got married, but then they didn't sustain their marriages. And so they got kids and we, and they could not provide for the kids. So the same thing that happens to my mom, it happens to my aunts and my uncles. And so they all brought their kids to my grandma. So we are like in this little house, like 10, 15 kids. And we're all of us looking at my grandma who does not even have a job herself. She only, the only thing that she used to do was to sell some traditional food. But then you can imagine my uncles, my aunts, my cousins were all in the same house. So sometimes she would do the, this business of making food to sell so that we can get something. But how is she going to sell food and we don't even have anything to eat? And so many other times where she would make the food and then the whole family would eat the food that she was supposed to sell. And so the business would co collapse every day. Sometimes you'd see a lot of people eating and you think, oh man, she has good business. No, everybody there is family. And that's how we would finish that business. And at some point it became even hard for us. Like we became even more and she could not even feed all of us. And so for me, I didn't want to become a thief. So the only thing that I thought I could do was to go to the streets of Nairobi. Now, Nairobi is the capital city of, 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 of Kenya. I went to the city of Nairobi and I wasn't going there to, to steal because that's what everybody was expecting me to do. Uh, I went to the city of Nairobi to, to beg. I thought begging was better than stealing. And since we had a lot of people who come, because Nairobi has people coming from all over. And so we'd go to the streets and we'd beg for money or food. And anything I'd find, I was not taking it to myself. I'd go home with it and I'd give it to my family and everybody would eat. Of course, if I get food, I eat it. Because <laughs> that's food that you can't take unless it's a lot. But then if I get money, I'll take it home and my family would feed and they'll all be happy. So I became a, a provider at the age of eight. So just that all this happens when I was just a little boy. So at the age of eight, I would go to the streets and beg and I would find money or whatever I would get and then I would take it home. My family would make a meal. And my grandmother was a woman of faith because at some point when we didn't even have anything to eat, there's something in Kenya we call ugali. I don't know uh, what other... In different countries in Africa, they call it different, but it's just simply made out of corn flour and hot water. So it's more like grits. I don't know if you guys are familiar with grits. It's just like grits, but without any flavor. So it's just hot water. You put corn flour, you stir it. It becomes very solid. And then you eat that with kale. But if you really have a lot of money, you can eat that with uh, beef or chicken. But of course, we, we could not afford meat. So it was uh, ugali with kale. That meal was less than a dollar. The whole family could feed for one dollar, for one meal. But that was not even easy to come by. But then when I would go to the street and I would find something, I would bring it home and the whole family would feed. They will all be happy. But then for me, the challenge became when I would go to the streets, I begged the whole day, I didn't find anything. And then I would go home and tell my family, I w today I didn't find anything. And believe it or not, they were disappointed that this eight-year-old kid could not get anything. And so for me, I was avoiding to disappoint my family. And so the only thing I was trying to do is, how do I go to the same streets and come home without anything? And so if I didn't find anything, either I don't come home or 
I try and find other means. And the other means is when I joined the wrong group of guys and I started stealing. So at the age of nine, I began stealing. And how we do it is that I'd come at first is beg you. For example, if I see you, I'm like, okay, can you give me something? If they can't give me something, the idea was you snatch whatever that is available, whether it's a pass, whether it's, well, at that time there was no cell phones. So if you have a pass or something that, that, that's valuable, I'd steal it and we'd run, go sell it, and then we'd bring the money home. Now, my family didn't know where I was getting the money. They just knew that, oh, you went to the streets and you got some money. Good, let's eat. But then, in Kenya, especially that time, even today, but more so that time, is what in, in Kenya we call the mob justice. So the idea is like the government cannot protect us as much because especially when, you're st when many kids are stealing and they're running away. And some of them, I understand some of us can, were dangerous. Like some of us, I, I never have to carry any weapon, but some of my friends did. And so sometimes when they are trying to steal from you, they can, they can harm you in a, in a bad way. And so the, the, the mob was, uh, the people were so mad about that. And so they'll be like, if they see somebody stealing, they're going to stop them. And they're not just stopping them. They're stopping them to beat them up and kill them. And so sometimes they would beat somebody with stones or anything they can find. And towards the end, they put a tie around their neck and they would burn them. So I've, I've seen a lot of my friends being killed. I've had a lot of my friends who we probably went to the same school, but they were killed while they were stealing. And so that's what happened when you're stealing. So sometimes you're even stealing something maybe less than a dollar. Sometimes even you're stealing something that doesn't even have anything. But the fact that you stole and somebody screamed and they were running after you, they get a hold of you, they're not going to spare your life. And so that happens actually to my brother. But luckily he was not killed, but he was beaten almost to death. He was stoned and the next thing was for them to bring a tire and burn him. And sometimes you'd see that even on television. They would air that on television because, they, of course, they want, to, they want every other person who is stealing to be scared. But then um, my brother didn't die as well. And for me, I was lucky. Although my friends, some of my friends have been stoned, for me, I was one of those lucky, lucky guys at that particular time. But then I was not so lucky because I was arrested. And being arrested sounds bad, which is bad, but it was better off than being killed. And at the age of nine, that's when I was arrested. And for the first time, I went to prison. And that was probably my darkest moment in life. I remember entering prison and I was like, where am I? And I found other kids. Some of them were younger than me. Some of them were older than me. And it was one of those spaces that I, I can't even imagine how I even found myself in that space. And I found other kids who, you know, that was their life. They would come in and out of prison, and to them, they didn't care. But for me, being that it was the first time, I was scared. And I knew deep inside me that this is not the life that I wanted to live. And I knew because of the life that we have back home, that's why I was doing what I was doing. But then I didn't want to be there. Because in there, I saw other kids who, it's one of those prisons that they don't really take care of you. You get sick while you're there, they can probably give you some medicine for pain. Even It doesn't matter what your, what your problem is. But then sometimes I've seen a lot of kids being dying in prison. And so for me, I was so scared. And I, I remember I started praying to God. And I was asking God to take me out of this prison. And I asked God to, take off this, to do two things. One, to take me out of this prison 
but secondly to take me out of poverty. Because I knew if I got out of this place and we're still poor, chances are I'm gonna go still and come back to the same place or probably die. But then I was not a believer, but I knew about God. If you've been to Africa, you'd realize you go to the streets and somebody's gonna be preaching. So whether you like it or not, you'll hear the gospel. You'll hear somebody telling you, hey, Jesus loves you. And to be honest with you, sometimes we didn't even take care. We didn't even worry about that. Like it was like, whatever, man. But then when I was in my darkest moment, I remembered the same God. And I knelt down and I called to the same God. I'm like, God, if you're there and if you exist, please take me out of this prison. But most importantly, take me out of poverty. So it was not immediately, but after some time, I found myself out of prison. But then I went to the same neighborhood, same family. Nothing had improved. Same things that I left, some of them were even worse. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, man, what's going to happen? Am I going to go back to the same prison? Or am I going to go back to the same street and probably die? But then let me tell you, God hears prayers. God, Anytime you pray, God doesn't have a dustbin of prayers. Like you don't pray and then it's like, okay, just dump those prayers. God hears prayers. And I don't know about you, but God answers my prayers in ways that I didn't even expect. You know, you pray to God and you expect God to come this way. God can come in any direction. And to me, he came through a direction that I didn't even expect. And that's how he came through the Ministry of Compassion International. Now, I know this church has been involved in compassion for uh, for years. And I know you guys know about compassion. But if you've never traveled to go and see the work of compassion, they go to the poor of the poorest neighborhood. They come to like my neighborhood and they come to those places not to act hero. You know, it's so easy to go to such places and like, hey, these guys are poor. They probably don't even know what's going on. They don't even know life. Let me let me show them how to survive. They don't do that because that's a big mistake. They go to these neighborhoods and they identify a church and they partner with that church. And why that is powerful is because compassion, the model is to rescue kids from poverty in Jesus' name. And so the model is to minister Jesus. And so when they partner with this church, they empower this church, and that church becomes the light in that community. For example, this church would, I hear this church ministers a lot to the community, which is a very, very good thing. And there's no better way to minister to the community than through the church. And so when compassion empowers that church, the church reaches out to the community. And so the people who were in that neighborhood would be like, we actually knew that it's the church that was helping us. We didn't even know so much about Compassion because we don't put up big banners of saying, hey, Compassion International, because the banner of Jesus is raised in that church. And so we support that church and that church become the light. And so through the, my local church, I was en- en- enrolled in the program of Compassion. And I'm going to tell you, it was one of the most exciting news coming from prison. I didn't even know what's going to happen next. And then here come a, comes a church that's like, hey, you can be part of our program. We all knew about the program. We all knew what that church does. And we all wanted to be part of it. Actually, all of our parents were like, man, if only my kid can be part of that program. But again, compassion cannot help everybody because it's like one church in a huge population of people who are poor. And so what happens is that they try and see if they can get one person per family. And I was so blessed to be one of those guys in that family that I was selected because I have so many cousins, I have brothers, but I was selected. And so when you get the program of compassion, they take a picture and they make a packet like the one I have here of uh, Alexandra. And this packet, it's not just a packet, it's a life. 
when you have a check which is as good as money, this packet is as good as Alexandra. Like if when, when you pick this, you're actually telling this kid, you know what, I'm going to sponsor you. And so they make packets and it has a, a small story about uh, Alexandra, where, where, where they're from, what they do. And so that was me maybe 20, 25 years ago, maybe 30 years ago. I'm a little bit older than that. But that was a packet of me. And the packet goes round, just like we have them here. And the idea is, who is going to connect with this kid? And say, you know what? I'm going to sponsor you. So most of the kids in my community got sponsored a lot, especially because this is what would happen. So Monday through Friday, you go to school. Compassion takes care of that. You don't have to worry about that. And then Saturday, you go to Compassion Center. On Sunday, you go to church. So you, you realize your whole week is already filled. The Bible says uh, an idle mind is the devil's workshop. And so the idea is to make sure that this kid, they're already occupied. They don't have any, there's no even time to go and, and join any gang. Like they're already occupied. And so on Saturday was like a favorite day because we used to eat a lot of food. There's, if there's one thing that I was excited about, today I'm going to have a decent meal and I'm going to eat all that I can. It was like a golden corral, if you guys are familiar with golden corral. But then one of our most exciting time was when the program was over towards the end of the day, they would call us in one room and they would read out names of kids that have been sponsored. So all along you're waiting to hear, hey, do, you, do I have a new sponsor? Do I have a sponsor? And so my friends would get, their names would be called and they have sponsors. Hey, you from US, from Canada, from UK and all that. And for some reason, everybody else around me was being sponsored but me. <laughs> And I started questioning myself, what's what's wrong with me? <laughs> Why am I not being sponsored, you know? I even started thinking, hey, maybe I'm not cute enough. And I, and I know when people go to the table, that's what they do. They look for the cutest kids, and those are the ones that you guys want to sponsor. And I was probably one, not one of those. But then we used to cross our fingers when they would read out names. I don't know if I can do it anymore. <laughs> we used to cross all of our fingers when they would read out the kids that have been sponsored. And so all that we were doing we were hoping that today is the day that my name was going to be called. So it's that special to us to hear that, hey, you have a sponsor. And so finally, a family from California, they sponsored me. And they said, welcome to a family. Welcome to the family of God. Now, I don't know what that means to my sponsor. I don't know what it would mean to you when you go to the table and pick a packet and sponsor. That only you can say. But what I can say is that what did it do to me? when that somebody picked a packet and they sponsored me. I have a daughter right now. Uh, she's 18 months. Her name is Shiloh. Shiloh Wamboy. Wamboy is my mom's name. Um, if I was not sponsored, I would still probably have Shiloh. But I would not have her in the U.S. She would be born in the same cycle of poverty. And so Shiloh would be born in poverty. I would be in poverty and would all be in the same so when we pick a packet, you think, oh, I'm just going to sponsor Alexander, and that's it. No, for me, when my sponsor picked me, they picked me, they picked my daughters, they picked my, all the other kids that I'm going to have. When they pick other kids, they're picking those kids and the whole generation. You are changing the trajectory of a generation. And I know sometimes we want to do so much, and we, you know, when we hear about poverty, we are thinking, man, there's so much that we can do. There's so many kids. I don't even know where to begin. You know what? Just do one. Don't know what God might do with that one. Because for me now, Shiloh does not have to go through poverty like I did. Well, I'll make sure she knows what there's poverty. I'll make sure that she can help as much as she can. 
but she was not going to be born in the same because somebody sponsored me. And so sponsorship is not just about money. And so what do you get from it? If if we had more time, I would have told you about the how much faith uh, my grandma had. And this is something that we can learn, especially when we are, we are in the West. We are like, we have everything has to be in order or I have to have this money before. I, I hear people planning so much, man, I have to go to, I don't know, someplace. I have to figure out the budget and, and all that. You come to Africa and you realize we live by faith. You can imagine sometimes we'd wake up in the morning, we don't have anything and my grandma would be assured we're going to get something to eat. And believe it or not, sometimes we'd get something. You'd live with people who don't have so much but yet they have so much joy. That is what you can learn from them. Because we, I honestly, apart from going without food and all those stuff, I actually like my life. I actually like what I went through. We actually used to have a lot of fun in all that. And there's so much that we can learn from these children. And so when we, when we sponsor, let's not think so much about, hey, we're just going to give them this. There's also something that they can get, you can get from this. And this is an opportunity for us to not just give, but to minister. As I finish, there are three things that I got from the program that nobody can take away from me. And no matter what happens, no matter who does what, they can never take away from me. One of them was education. I was, I was able to go to school and compassion was able to educate me. The second was love. You get to communicate and write letters back and forth. So the first time I heard the words, I love you, was from my sponsor. They told me that and it, it meant everything to me. The third and the most important thing that compassion did to me is that compassion introduced me to Jesus. And anytime we sponsor these kids, they're going to hear about Jesus every day, every night. There are so many gifts we can give to anybody, especially the poor people, but the best gift we can give them is Jesus. If Jesus didn't come to my life, and I had the money and, and the school and everything, I would still probably be still in, po in poverty. But Jesus came into my life, and my life changed. My thinking is different. And now I know the wealth is not the money that I have, but that I have confidence that God loves me and he gave me life. And that's the most important thing. And so as we finish, I just want to end with a word of prayer and say thank you to everybody who sponsors. If you've ne ever doubted whether sponsorship works, I'm a living example. Because for me, if this didn't come through, I'd probably be dead or I'd be in prison. But because somebody sponsored me, I'm alive right now. And I thank God for that. Lord, we want to thank you. And we bless you, Lord, for this opportunity, the Lord, we had to share about my story, which is your story, Lord, of what you've done in my life and in the lives of many other children through the ministry of compassion. And God, I'm asking that even the children that are waiting to be sponsored right now, even the kids that are crossing their fingers, they think that nobody loves them, that through this, through the people that are hearing this message, they can decide to pick a packet sponsor a child and change their life just like my life was changed even as they learn from those kids of how to be patient of how to love and to be happy no matter what like happiness does not come with money but happiness comes from you we thank you and we bless you i pray this believing and trusting in jesus name amen thank you guys <laughs>